0: My dad was a very popular guy. My grandmother, just a force of love. Her name was Lovey, and we called her Mama Lovey. The strongest privilege is parental privilege. Outspokenness and fearlessness is no longer valued in corporate media. Now I'm now I'm seeing why the fearless with Jason Whitlock is in the title. I'm sitting in the old, in the rose garden, and as I look to my left, I could see the 45th president of the United States, sitting at his desk conducting business. Oh. I'm Jimmy Whitlock's son, Joyce Whitlock's son. My <laughs> mother's a factory worker. My dad didn't graduate high school. In 1984, I'm living in a one-bedroom, 400-square-foot apartment, sleeping on a couch in the hood in Indianapolis. Uh, That's and I'm man. sitting in the Rose Garden waiting <laughs> <laughs> on the president to come out and talk to me.
1: Friends, thanks for tuning in to Third Drive Stage. You're about to listen or watch an episode with Jason Whitlock. That is amazing. Before you do, um, I want to ask you to subscribe, hit that bell button, stay in the loop, and ask you for a favor. If you can go to christianrayflores.com, christianrayflores.com, I started a new newsletter called Headspace. And in it, I put in bullet points of books, podcasts, music, episodes of the different mediums that we have different conversations all in one place that gets delivered to your inbox every week and if you don't like it you can always unsubscribe it's very easy to do but uh, I would love it if you go to christianrayflores.com and subscribe to the headspace newsletter I think you will enjoy it now to our guest Jason Whitlock is an American sports journalist and culture critic is a he's a columnist podcaster and digital TV host for Blaze Media where he hosts the show Fearless with Jason Woodlock. Woodlock is a former columnist at the Kansas City Star, AOL Sports, Fox Sports and ESPN. Um, he's done this for decades. He's a good friend. Um, I had the honor to be part of his show in in his conversation and now he is on Third Drive Stage where I'm very I'm very very excited to have him. Jason, thanks for coming on.
0: No problem. I have a question right off the top. You Uh, have a question. Okay, go. Yes, I have a question right off the top. Third drive stage, what's behind the name?
1: Okay, thanks for asking. So third drive comes from the three levels of how a human being is motivated, right? There's the basic instinct, there's the reward and punishment, and then sort of this optimal level for a human being, which is meaning and mastery and autonomy, uh, as a human being. So that's where the name comes from. And then third drive stage is basically this idea that we bring people we admire. And we want to pick their brain and we want to learn from their, their wisdom of living. That's third drive stage.
0: Got you. All right.
1: <laughs> Let me ask you this. You grew up in Indianapolis in the 70s. Um And you and I are sort of in the same general age bracket, but we grew up in very different places. But I would love to hear how was it growing up in Indianapolis in the 70s for Jason Whitlock?
0: Well, one of the things I tell people all the time is that, uh, you know, I grew up poor, but I had no idea. I thought I was very rich, very well taken care of. Uh, and I loved my upbringing and childhood. You know, my parents divorced when I was four or five years old. My brother was six or seven years old at the time. And I, I, I got, there was no trauma for me as a child because I was just too young to really understand what happened between my parents. Uh, and so all of my memories... Of their marriage and of my childhood are really really positive and that's despite uh being poor you know when my parents divorced i lived with my mom and we certainly lived in the ghetto in a very small apartment in the hood but i didn't know it was the ghetto and i didn't know it was the hood i thought it was the place where all my best friends were and where i went to school and where my mother cooked great meals and uh, where my cousins lived around the corner within walking distance. And and so I, I just remember loving all of my childhood. And, you know, eventually my mother ended up taking a second job and moved us out to a working class suburb uh, where I had a lot of athletic success and uh, was a very popular kid at my high school. And... I just remember that experience, like really fondly. And even my last year of high school, my mother uh, was a factory worker and she worked at Western Electric and the plant closed in, in Indianapolis. And she had to move to Kansas City, Missouri to retain her job. And I moved in with my dad, who I was, you know, very close to. But at that time, my dad was really on financial hard times. The IRS had taking his business and garnished his wages. And my dad was flat broke. And so my senior year of high school, me and my dad lived in the hood in a one bedroom, 400 square foot apartment. I remember it very fondly. I slept on the couch most nights, Uh, but I, (laughs) I was not miserable. I was not, I I don't know, I, I was still the most popular kid at my high school. I was still the captain of the football team. We won a state championship. I got a football scholarship. And so I just remember being very optimistic about life and, you know, enjoying my life and my parents and grandparents certainly instilled with me with the confidence that uh you know i could accomplish anything and everything i wanted here in america if i just worked hard enough and made enough sacrifices and so uh my upbringing and childhood were terrific although i think some people would look back and go my god man (laughs) you know i have I have
1: i have a very similar take on it it's really fascinating to hear that story because i you know i as as you know, I grew up in the Soviet Union. I spent some time in Africa, like third world, third world, right? Like I slept on a I slept I slept on a pull out chair in the kitchen. That was my bedroom, and I had one of those separators, you know, you know, like the seventies yeah. had little strings that go back down, like from the yes. ceiling. At one of those, that was my wall essentially, you know, not very much, not a lot of separation. I was in the kitchen, and I had the same feeling I had it was like, you know, I didn't, I didn't think of myself as poor. And I didn't think of myself as disadvantaged at all. I just enjoyed my family and my parenting. Now, the, the difference that I do have, I think, from your experience is that my parents got divorced when I was 14. So there was a bit more of a trauma, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and at four, it's probably better, you know, and, I mean, not ideal, obviously. Uh, but let me ask you this. So if, if, if you were you and your dad close, who was your mentor? I mean, do you, did you have any male model, uh, uh, role models growing up?
0: My dad was my idol. Uh, I mean, I looked up to my dad tremendously. Uh, my dad, uh, unlike me, uh, very good looking, handsome man, looked like Billy D. Williams or whoever a Hollywood star was. And for a lot of my childhood, after my parents divorced, because my parents divorced for a number of reasons, but one of them was my dad wanted financial independence. He was a factory worker as well, but he wanted to be his own boss. Uh, And so he started first a barbershop and then a a bar business. And, And my dad was a very popular guy throughout the black community in Indianapolis. And he owned a bar and he dressed immaculately. And he always drove a new Cadillac for most of the time, but this is before I moved in with him and women love my dad. And so uh, my dad and my dad was very smart and a a very wise person. And uh, I looked up and wanted to be like my dad, wanted to please my dad. Uh, Can't say that I always did because, you know, for many years, <laughs> I didn't dress anything like my dad. I liked to dress more comfortably. I was a big guy and you know, I didn't want to be in a suit and tie like my dad every day of his life. But uh, my dad uh, was my idol. Uh, my mother was a great source of comfort and stability. When we moved uh, from the inner city to a working class suburb, we lived there from time I was in third grade all the way up until uh, my junior year of high school so for eight straight years and I tell people all the time one of the best things you can give a kid is a stable address so they're not changing (laughs) friends and schools and just not all that up people and so I I didn't have any of that we were established on the far east side of Indianapolis and and my mother uh, did everything she could to provide for me and my brother and and my father stayed involved in our lives. And, and again, was, was my idol. And we, I can remember, you know, going to my dad's bar and helping him build it as a little kid, you know, we were his helpers. Uh, and then I would say perhaps the person that had the biggest impact on me, uh, was my mom's mom, my grandmother. Uh she was just such a strong spiritual force, uh, just a force of love. Her name was Lovey and we called her Mama Lovey. And mm-hmm. uh she just loved everybody and just emoted Christian love. And uh she's the person that uh brought me to Christ or or you know was the key spiritual influence on me as a kid and as a young person and just one of the greatest human beings if not the greatest human being to walk this planet other than Jesus. Uh, And so, uh, you know, those three influences, my grandmother, my mom and dad. And then I was blessed uh, with a brother and a stepsister and, and to a lesser degree, but also a stepbrother who I was the baby who were very supportive of me. And very, uh, just strong influences on me in different ways. My brother, again, because my parents are divorced, he he was far more mature than I was. He's three years older, but he was just a more responsible person. And he allowed me—I was kind of a free spirit and irresponsible—and he just allowed me to be the kind of goofball jock kid. And and then my sister. Uh, stepsister, i stepsister, just a sister to me, uh, was somebody that was a great achiever. You know, she always worked as a young person, put herself through college, did all kinds of great things that kind of opened my eyes. Like, man, if my sister can do all this, wh- what can I do? And so she was another person that I consider an, an idol to me. And then my, my stepbrother was heavy into sports and was the guy that, you know, taught me a lot about sports and uh, older than me, but, you know, he's somebody that, you know, I played basketball and football with, and uh, I used to, <laughs> he used to beat me up in boxing on weekends. And so and it, I was blessed with a tremendous family of support.
1: That's, isn't that remarkable how that sets you
0: up in life? Sim- things like Simple things like
1: that, right? Origin stories well, stuff.
0: Yeah, without question. I think that the type of family support I had, I guess, if there was a moral to this story, is just far more important than money. Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. think we think that money solves problems. Oh, if we could just provide people with all these tools and if they had a car and if they had access to this school or that school. And... I didn't really have that. What I what I just had were people, a group of people who wanted me to do well, wanted me to feel safe, and wanted to support whatever I was into. And I was really into sports. And when I think of all those people, but particularly my brother, my grandmother, and uh, my mother and father, like their support of me in sports and you know my brother fell upon him to drive me to and from because my brother wasn't an athlete or anything but he he had to drive me to and from practices and things like that, and he did it without ever complaining taking care of his irresponsible baby brother who loved sports was never seemed like a hassle to him it seemed like something he just thought was, well, oh this is my job this is my role uh so i i just think that far more than then money is what is missing in a lot of kids' life. Man,
1: I, I really agree with that. It's, it's, fast, it's fascinating to see how many of those stories correlate with each other, right? It's really not your starting point in the sort of socioeconomic ladder that matters is who you're with and how, how loved you are uh, that matters. And that actually gives you... In my mind, that gives you the disproportionate advantage in life, um, not where you started. And a lot of the a lot of the, uh, I think, public conversation these days uh, is, is centered around advantage, advantage or disadvantage that has nothing to do with real, what actually gives you the real advantage or disadvantage, doesn't it?
0: I I, I think Christian, we talk a lot about different racial privileges white privilege and now there are people arguing that you know black people have privilege in this country the way things are are set up but the strongest privilege is parental privilege (laughs) and I was privileged to have two parents that were committed to me and my brother and that's the greatest advantage that that trumps financial privilege it Because it, it, listen, I mean, I'm 54 years old now and I've seen a lot and I've seen some very wealthy kids uh, spoiled by their parents through wealth, but deprived of the proper kind of support, discipline, accountability, uh, you know, that really plants a seed and fertilizes growing someone of great character or growing someone who will go on to be successful and so you can shower kids with a lot of money you can cover up a lot of their mistakes with money uh... but if you don't instill the right values and then and it's not just telling them it's showing them it's exhibiting i'll never forget it you know because my my dad flawed just like every other man on the that's ever been on this planet uh not perfect but but he he had a lot of life philosophies that he shared with me and but he, and he would share them with me but also he would demonstrate them and I'll never forget one of because again, my dad owned a bar, he liked to drink. Uh he's what I would call a very high functioning alcoholic. And 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 I I call him an alcoholic just because you know, he drank most days, but I never saw my dad out of control. I never saw him speak abusively or in any kind of rude way to anybody. Uh, but, you know, he did drink every most days. And so, you know, typical bar owner. But but <laughs> I can never forget my dad, because uh, when we were living together my senior year of high school, he didn't own a bar. He worked at a friend's bar and he comes home. Uh, after having a few drinks and he sits on the couch and we just have this long discussion about his very good friend at the time a guy named slim carruthers who was uh you know relatively wealthy certainly a millionaire owned a lot of property and and uh, owned some bars and different things uh around indianapolis And, and slim and my dad were friends when my dad was doing well and they were friends when my dad was on his rear end and slim wanted to go to a mike tyson fight okay and and he asked my dad to go because that's what they when my dad was doing well my dad would go on trips like that and i can remember my dad saying he goes and he was like jason i i can't afford to go slim says you know oh he'll take care of everything you know i can pay him back when we're good and and my dad was like no way As a man, I'm not letting some other man uh, cover my expenses on some trip like that. He goes, there's a responsibility that goes along with everything you accept from another person. My dad's telling me this when I'm 17, 18 years old. I've never forgotten it. And I've applied it to everything. And, uh, you know, it's been a foundational core value of mine. And, and so when I say, I apply it to everything. People hear that story and think it's just, uh, Oh, it's about money. And, and no, it's about anything you accept from a person. There's a responsibility that goes along with it. And so I've, I've for years have told young people have told friends of mine. I was like, Hey man, when that girl you're pursuing, uh, shares intimacy with you, there's a mm-hmm. responsibility that goes along with that. You just can't take that and then run off and do whatever you want. There's expectations and responsibilities. To go. Are you willing to live up to all those responsibilities? If that intimacy creates a child, are you willing to live up to those responsibilities? If by having intimacy with her, it sparks a love, a passion in her that, you know, requires attention and care and time. Are you willing to live up to those? If you're not willing to live up to those responsibilities, don't accept it. Don't don't take it. Don't be a selfish person. Uh, I mean, so the things my dad shared with me, uh, just have stuck with me through life, and and that's again where I just go. I, I was very rich in support. Yeah, and time and energy. Yeah, uh, financially, sense. you know. <laughs> it all,
1: it all, it, it comes in it, it comes later, right? Uh, yes. So let me shift the conversation just a little bit. You've worked among other places: Kansas City Star, AOL, ESPN, Fox Sports, Blaze. How is the industry? And you've done this for decades now. How has the industry shifted, and where is it going in your mind? As, of course, that's a huge answer but like high level high level
0: uh i mean for me someone that grew up wanting to be like a, there was a columnist out of chicago named mike Royko. many people in america consider him the greatest newspaper columnist of all time uh he was very popular in chicago in the 1960s 70s and 80s and 90s and that's who i grew up reading as a kid And I wanted to be like Mike Royko as a newspaper columnist and as a media person and personality and Mike Royko's brand was built off of following the truth wherever it leads and being outspoken about the truth and being fearless about speaking truth. He took on uh, the political machine in Chicago and the state of Illinois. He, 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 challenged aldermen and all the politicians, the mayor. Richard Daly wrote a book called The Boss. Anyway, he was fearless and outspoken. And so that's what my whole career was based on, particularly during the newspaper time I worked in the newspaper industry from 1990 through 2010. And one of the most difficult things that I've experienced in my life is that that outspokenness and fearlessness is no longer valued in corporate media being objective being unpredictable uh... being someone who speaks truth to power no longer has any value within the corporate mainstream media industry having an agenda uh... supporting the establishment never challenging it uh... groupthink Uh, narrative over fact all of that now has value and so I went for 20 years 25 years building a a brand and a career off of trying to be the modern day Mike Royko of sports media Mike was not in sports he was more in the politics and things like that but uh, my whole career was based off that and then it completely changed and that corporate media doesn't really allow truth. And and so that's one of the reasons why I had to seek independence and 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 leave the corporate media world and and strike out with on my own and, and with the Blaze now uh where I I think on platforms like the Blaze and and what I'm doing it is the only place where you can really comfortably just kind of follow the truth wherever it leads and and even that's under attack because big tech is in control of all the platforms that you know we operate on on and under um uh, but that's been the biggest sea change i mean and it has been an immense one i mean it was very disconcerting for a while like wow what i do <laughs> is no longer valued in corporate america and and so then you got to man up and 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 like strike out on your own and be willing to go independent and build some autonomy and and some freedom for yourself that way.
1: And I th- I love that that you said that and I I honestly think there's always going to be a space and a demand for truth seekers. Um and yes, times are interesting. They're shifting. Um, but definitely, even technologically, there are things that are now emerging very, very quickly that allow for decentralized uh, stuff that is not attached to, you know, essentially like a, the middleman. Uh, um, so, so I think your voice is is going to be in demand and heard widely, regardless of the shifts. And um, you know, now I'm, now I'm seeing why the fearless with, with Jason Whitlock is in the title of the of the program that you do for for blaze it's interesting um, so having you know talking about major shifts, especially political shifts you had the distinct uh, opportunity to interview donald trump in september twenty twenty how was that
0: experience uh... it was fascinating for me individually because i, I as I'm waiting in the Rose Garden for President Trump to come out of the Oval Office, and so I'm I'm sitting in the o- in the Rose Garden, and as I look to my left, I could see the 45th President of the United States sitting at his desk conducting business, and I'm sitting out on a porch, patio, whatever, balcony area waiting for the president at the Rose garden at the white house. And I am literally thinking I'm Jimmy Whitlock's son, Joyce Whitlock's son. my mother's a factory <laughs> worker. My dad didn't graduate high school in 1984. I'm living in a one bedroom, 400 square foot apartment, sleeping on a couch in the hood in Indianapolis. Uh, That's and fantastic, I'm man. sitting in the Rose garden, waiting <laughs> on the president to come out and talk to me. And, and I I'm gonna be on what what's I'm gonna be very transparent here. What's even crazier about it that was a little bit disconstr disconcerting is like because things are so politically divided and because black people uh have been convinced that Donald Trump is the second coming of Adolf Hitler and Uh, whatever racist bigot you can think of in American history that while I'm sitting here thinking like, man, what a testament my career and journey is to my parents, my brothers and sisters, and my dad has passed. But what ended up happening is my parent, my mother, brothers, they couldn't enjoy what I was doing because they were convinced that what I was doing was the worst thing in the world. I'm engaging with Donald Trump. And you shouldn't engage with Donald Trump. And so it's, it's, I'm sitting there going, look at me and what the Whitlocks and my family accomplished. I'm a journalist. And so even if Donald Trump were all the things that the media right. have painted him to be. right? As a journalist, it's my job to go interview him. Absolutely. An and so even if I were interviewing Adolf Hitler, it's like that he's a powerful political figure or the most arguably the most powerful political figure in the world. You're interviewing him. That's an accomplishment. But my family couldn't process it that way. They could only process it through the racial lens that corporate media uh tells you to process everything and 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 so it was quite an experience for me uh you know I'm not trying to as again I've celebrated my family at the beginning of this interview and I certainly I'm telling you they're the most important people in the world to me and I wouldn't be here without them and love them to death but that was a frustrating reaction I got from the people closest to me and most important to me. Uh, but not everyone reacted that way. Uh, I'm close to some other people. There's a, a, a kid who played football at Ball State named Dante Love. He was going to be an NFL player, wide receiver, whatever. He He broke his neck in 2007 playing a football game. And I basically at that time adopted him as my son. Mm-hmm. And this is a great young man. He's now like thirty-five years old. He's got a kid, and he, now he's got another kid on the way. Great, very proud of him. He wrote me the greatest text message I've ever received in my life. He 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 got everything about what my interview with Trump was about, and just how proud he was. And was like, because he's known me since the mid two thousands. And he's seen my career uh, grow from the time he met me to the point of, you know, sitting at the Rose Garden, interviewing the White House. And and so his it was a very long text message and it explained there. And I was like and I knew Dante was smart, but I was like, I didn't know he was this smart that he got it on every single level. So uh, it was a great experience interviewing Trump.
1: That's fantastic.
0: And and I
1: I agree with you absolutely. Regardless of how you view the the president, he is the president of of America, leader of the three, free world at the time. It's it's an absolute, you know, mountain top experience professionally for you, you know. I've had a couple of those myself, but but it's
0: exciting. I you mean, know, it's absolutely exciting. Yeah, particularly for a sports writer or a sports yeah. broadcaster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's huge. Because again, it was a statement about all the work that I'd done and the importance of the work that I'd done in sports, because I always took my sports column and sports broadcasting approach as it's, this isn't just about sports, this is about American culture. And I always wrote about sports in a way that broadened the topic and made it far more important than just sports. And that that led to the opportunity to interview the president. Uh, that's a cherry on top of Oh, Absolutely. Career.
1: And I, I and I, I I actually like that a lot about the way you approach even sort of t- speaking about sports you make it a broader conversation about culture um and about sort of a national identity and a national conversation it's really interesting actually it's really fascinating I think it's quite unique unless you know I don't know the I don't know the landscape but it feels like it's quite unique and interesting and special so um thanks for coming on I have probably half a dozen other questions for you if you ever find time to come back. But uh, but I, I really appreciate you coming on.
0: Christian, I would love to come back. We can do it anytime. You're one of my favorite people. I know we don't know each other well, but uh, I think your story is amazing. Uh, I saw uh, over Twitter during Thanksgiving the picture you put out of your family. And what a beautiful family you have. Uh, Thank God for your wife, Uh, your daughters look just like her, I'd hate for them to look anything like you. Yes. Uh, Thank uh, you. (laughs) 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 Thank you. You're right. (laughs) You're a good man. You're a good man.
1: Please come back. I, I have like half a dozen other really interesting things, rabbit holes to go into and I would love to do that sometime. Anytime.